The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Thank you. Be seated. All right. It's end of the summer. We're transitioning to school. All the vacations, well, there may be one or two left, but how many people drove more than eight hours to go on vacation somewhere this year? Raise your hand. Yeah, so that's a large chunk of us. And um, you might have driven to the beach. How many drove to Florida to the beaches this summer? Yeah. Well, that's not as many. Okay. And we got to talk to the rest of y'all, figure out where y'all are going, because that's all we ever seem to figure out is going to the beach. All right. So we pack up our car, go to the Florida, go to Florida, go to the mountains. We fill it to the rim with everything that you can squeeze in there. And then we buy a turtle shell to fit on top of the truck to put everything in there that you can't fit into the car. And if you have young kids especially, you cram them in there and you're in the car for an eight-hour trip, which never seems to be able to be done in less than 11 hours. And no matter what route you take, if you go through Baton Rouge, you will be in bumper-to-bumper traffic. And it's awful. And everyone has to use the bathroom at the wrong time. And it's, it's misery. I, I'm sorry, kids, that we have to enlighten you that this is the way we feel about the car. But we try to make it more fun and, and educational and story time. I know, Mark. I know you made it great times. I've heard, I know that. I know that. Okay, well, we're not all as good as Mark, okay? The rest of us are just sitting there. Can we make it through this 13-hour nightmare journey? So why do we do this to ourselves? How many of you made Amarillo, Texas your vacation destination this year? How many of you drove, because I Googled it, and it's the same mileage to Seaside as it is Amarillo, Texas. I'm thinking about it next year. Okay, so nobody made Amarillo our destination. All right, why do we make Seaside, Rosemary, Seagrove, Destin, whatever, our destination, yet not Amarillo? Why will we make that drive there and not to Amarillo? It's pretty, yeah, a lot prettier in Florida than Amarillo. I assume, I don't know that I've ever stopped in Amarillo. If you're from Amarillo, I love Amarillo. I'm not against Amarillo. Yeah, so it's probably, so, so what's in Florida? Why do you go to Florida? It's beautiful, the beach, the water, the, water, the wind, the beauty, the relaxation, right? Okay, so you have decided that it's worth it, right? It's worth the misery and the pain that it takes to get to the destination. Today, we're going to see a similar answer to the question, why does Nehemiah give his life to the restoration of these people? Because we're going to see it doesn't go so well, and we're going to see it takes a lot of energy and effort to make this his life mission. And we're asking ourselves the same question because what we've seen in the book of Nehemiah is that if you put your faith in Christ, meaning he becomes your only source of righteousness because that's the gospel. Christ is your righteousness. There is no other way to be made right with God other than by faith in Jesus Christ, receiving his righteousness as a gift. So if you've done that, what we've learned is that you are then enlisted to join and continue the work of Christ of bringing restoration to people. We've seen our series called Restoring a People. We have the picture of the city of Shreveport in the backdrop. The idea is that from the book of Nehemiah, we learn that we are called to bring gospel restoration to the city of Shreveport, to communities, to our family, to our friends. And it's hard, taxing, laboring, laborious work. It's not easy. 
How many of you have ever walked alongside someone and discipled them for years? Years and years and poured your life into them and been available. They've called you at all hours of the night and you've constantly been there teaching them the gospel, teaching the word of God, praying, patiently walking with them. Yet it seems like it never seems to change. You just keep seeing them in the same life of destruction. Where do you find the motivation to keep on giving your life to restoration? Or constantly thinking, I mean, every year that I reevaluate the church and my life, it's not like I've ever said, ah, we have arrived in evangelism and missions. It's the constant battle of We always know there's more to do. There's more work. We need to do a better job. Where do we find the motivation to keep on doing that which is not natural? We don't wake up every day naturally wanting to give our life away in service to others. We aren't taught as kids to say, mine, right? We automatically are born with selfishness. Where do you find the strength to keep on keeping on in service of the Lord, pouring your life out to bless others. We're going to find our answer in the text today. We've come to the last chapter of Nehemiah. Uh Uh-oh, something just happened out there. Coffee cup just dropped. We come to our last chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 13. And here's basically a big picture of what we're going to see. Nehemiah has served 12 years in Jerusalem, bringing restoration. He takes... We, we saw last week, the, we reached the climax. Yes, they are restored. They are brought to covenant to establish their repentance and their right with the Lord. They're moved back to Jerusalem. The walls are rebuilt. And if the book ended there, we would think, all right, Nehemiah, mission accomplished. But what we're going to see today is he, he left after doing all that work. He went back to Persia where he was the cupbearer to the king And then after a time away, he came back to check on Jerusalem. And I want to read to you what he saw when he came back to Jerusalem after giving 12 years of his life to try to bring restoration there. This is what he finds when he comes back to Jerusalem. Look, we're going to read verses 4 through 13 of chapter 13. Here's what he sees. Now, prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God being related to Tobiah. Now, Tobiah was the enemy. Remember, Sanballat and Tobiah were always opposing Nehemiah. This high priest, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, meaning Tobiah, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. And then he talks about his brief time away. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked for leave from the king, and I came back to Jerusalem, and I learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. So do you see what's happening here? 
Tobiah was an enemy of God's people, enemy of restoration, enemy of the temple of God being the place where God's people worship him. Nehemiah got it all right, went back to Persia, came back, and instead of the storehouses being filled with grain, being filled with all the the tithes of the people, remember they made that covenant a few weeks ago. We looked at that covenant they made and they said, we will honor God with our money. We will tithe and we will provide so that worship can continue in the house of God. Well, he leaves and he comes back and they're not doing that. The storehouse, which is supposed to be full of the tithe, has the enemy of God living in it and there's no tithes in it. You talk about discouraging. Nehemiah has given 12 years of his life to bring restoration in Jerusalem. He leaves for a brief moment, comes back, and it's, they're breaking the covenant they made about their tithe and the enemy of God's living inside the courtyard of the temple of God. This is an atrocity. And so at this time, what does Nehemiah do? What would you do if you found all your work vanished overnight? Well, here's what he does in verse 8. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room And then I gave an order to cleanse the rooms. And I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered the portions of Levites had not been given to them. And so the Levites, the singers who performed the services, had gone away, each to his own field. So now we see why the the storehouse was available for Tobiah to live in. They stopped tithing. Well, when the people stopped tithing, the Levites and those who served said, well, we've got to live off of something. So they quit serving there and they went back to the fields to provide for themselves and their families. They got outside vocational jobs, secular jobs. And so he says, wait, this is not right. Someone's got to serve. So we've got to provide so that some can serve. So he reprimanded the officials and he said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and he restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought their tithe of the grain, the wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, he appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah the Levites. In addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute their kinsmen. So what did Nehemiah do? He went back to work, brought them back to repentance. He did exactly what he did just a few chapters ago. The exact same covenant. Remember, the covenant was we will honor God with our money, our priorities, and our family. He comes back, and they're not doing it with their money. They're not, they're not honoring God with their money, and so the enemy moves into the house of God. Nehemiah doesn't get discouraged. He doesn't quit. He doesn't say, forget y'all. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't say, good riddance. I'm going back to my job. He says, all right, let's do this. And so he works hard again to bring back restoration. What else happens? Next, we see the second covenant commitment they made is broken. Priorities. Look at verses 15 through 21. In those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day that they sold food. Also, men of Tyre were living... Uh, were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. And then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? 
Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us all brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you're adding wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath? Remember, we saw this a few weeks ago that the Sabbath was God's design for humanity was to set aside a day to rest, not just to have physical rest, though scientists have seen how important that is, but also to have time carved out as priority number one to gather with the people of God for a solemn assembly to worship God. And Leviticus 23, 32 said, the Sabbath is a humbling of the soul. It's a humbling of the soul and we need it. It was their priority number one. Everything took a back seat to this day of gathering to worship. They covenanted, we will get back to right priorities. He goes, he comes back, done. Sabbath is being totally neglected. Everything is consuming their lives. Work is more important. Everything has gone back. The Sabbath is not being reserved as priority. Worship is not priority in their life. So what does Nehemiah do? Does he say, forget you guys. I'm done with you. You've broken 66% of the covenant. We had three items and one, two are already broken. What are you doing? No, he says in verse 19, it came about that just as it grew dark in the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut. They should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gate so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise, they spent the night outside of Jerusalem. And then I warned them and I said to them, why do you spend the night out in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will bring force against you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. So what did he do? He led them once again to repentance. He did exactly what he did before. Let's get back. Get your life back into conformity with the word of God. Prioritize your life so that worship of God is priority number one. So we see their money, their priorities. Well, maybe they got it right with family. Remember the covenant had those three, three categories, money, priorities, and family. They were told don't marry foreign women because they will lead you to other gods. It's not, a, not that they were bigots, not that they were racist, it's not that they were... Foreigners, it was that those foreigners were not converts. They did not lead people. They did not worship the one true God. So this covenant of family was raise your children to know and worship the one true God. So how are they doing? He goes, he comes back, and here's what he sees in verse 23. In those days, I also saw the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And their children half spoke in the language of Asdod, and not one of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So, no, they weren't raising their kids to know God. They didn't even speak the Hebrew language. They didn't even speak the language that God gave them to learn about God. So they weren't honoring their covenant to honor, to raise their family to worship God. So what we see is a picture of complete devastation, destruction, reversal of everything that Nehemiah gave 12 years of his life to bring restoration. So what does he do? Does he give up on them? No, but he does get a little ugly in verse 25. I contend with them 
and I cursed them, and I struck some of them, and I pulled their hair out. That is godly. I think that should be a part of our church covenant. And made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then he talks about how this is exactly what brought down Solomon. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was loved by God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest. So one of the high priest's grandsons was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the other enemy of God. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So what do we see in summary? Nehemiah, after giving his life to bringing restoration in Jerusalem. He goes back to his job, starts working, and it says, after some time, I went back to check on him, and what does he see? There they go again. Everything they covenanted to do, honor God with our family, our priorities, and our money, it's listed exact same text, same language, broken their covenant to honor God with their family, their priorities, and their money. How does he... How does he not just say, you know what? I'm done. I think, I think none of us would blame him. Say, look, dude, you, you did your best. Just, just give up. We're going to find the answer to that question is embedded in our text. Three times it tells us. Three times it tells us the secret to his faithful perseverance, though he wants to give up. But before we get there, I want us to notice what we've said about Nehemiah all along, that there is Nehemiah is a picture, not of me, not of you, but he is a picture of Christ. And the people of Israel are the picture of us. Now, when we see and read it, yeah, I like to see the way I'm a lot like Nehemiah, great leader. No, we're, we're like Israel. And so what we see in this text is a picture of human nature of always returning to sin. In this lifetime... We're not going to be rid of sinful desires until Christ comes back and finishes us off. Until then, we are like Israel, constantly finding ourselves desiring sinful things. The writer of Proverbs says it in a kind of a gross way. In Proverbs 26, 11, he says, like a dog that returns to his vomit. Anyone ever had a dog do that? That's just disgusting. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That's what we do. We know sin makes us sick. We know it's not good for us. Yet, what do we all do? We all find ourselves gravitating towards returning to the sin. So that's a picture of humanity. But Nehemiah is a picture of Christ. And what has Nehemiah done? Time after time, he finds them in sin, and what does he do? 
he gets them back where they need to be. And so what we see is Christ never gives up on us. Praise God for that. Because we're the ones pictured as returning to vomit. That's not a pretty picture. But Christ never gives up. He is faithful. He is never going to give up. Ultimately, if we don't give up and we keep following Christ, waging war against the sin and not giving into it and giving over to it and turning away from Christ, ultimately, a lifetime of waging war and pursuing, ultimately, he says, I will finish what I started in your life. And so this is a picture of the gospel. And this is the point of chapter 13. Christ never gives up on you. Ultimately, we all see our sinfulness and we've got to realize we need righteousness. We can't earn it because we, if left to our own selves, we're not going to earn it. We're going to go to sin. Instead, we need it as a gift and that's what Christ offers. Gift-based, grace-based righteousness. And Christ From that point on, never will let go of you. He won't give up on you, so don't give up your fight against sin. But here's where I want to finish today. I want to ask the question, how in the world does Nehemiah find the motivation, find the energy, find the determination to not give up on the people he's trying to to restore? Because that's what the, the book does. It calls us to go to Shreveport, It calls us to to share with our community. It calls us to share with our neighbors, our friends, our family, to bring gospel restoration, to bring the truth of God's word that people's lives can be restored. And that's hard work. People aren't going to like you. People are going to ostracize you. They're going to mock you. They're going to call you names. They're going to oppose you. They're going to become a little bit weird. You're not going to have, it's not easy when people reject you. It's not easy to stand up for what's right. It's not easy to, to find the strength to speak up when it's so much easier to be quiet. How do we keep on? How do you come alongside that person who continually seems to never get it right or gets it right for a little while and then they turn right back? How are you going to find the energy? What's going to drive you to never give up on them? Or maybe it's faithfulness at work. Seems so ordinary. Doing the right thing for the right reasons day in and day out with integrity and honesty and nobody notices, nobody seems to give you credit. It doesn't get you anywhere at the job. In fact, the guy who's partying with the boss gets the promotion and here you are doing what's right day in and day out. How do you keep on doing that? How did Nehemiah keep on? We find the answer embedded in each section. We see a broken covenant, and then you see verse 14. Look at verse 14, Nehemiah 13, 14. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of God and its services. Does that strike you funny? Anyone, does that make you go, that's kind of weird. I didn't think that would be the right thing to say. Here he is selflessly giving himself away. He comes back and finds they're breaking the covenant to honor God with their money after 12 years. And then he says, God, will you remember me? I've given all I've got 
to serve these people. And then we see the next section of the text was another broken covenant. And what does Nehemiah say? Verse 22 of chapter 13. For this also, remember me, right in the middle, remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Remember what I've done, Lord. Don't forget all that I've done for these people. And then another section of Scripture, breaking the covenant. And then what does he say again at the end? Verse 31. Nehemiah 13, 31, the very last words of the book of Nehemiah, surprisingly, remember me, oh my God, for good. So it's a strange text. What motivates you to keep on pouring your life out, to keep on serving others, to keep on dying to self, to keep on raising your kids, even if they keep on rebelling, to keep on being faithful at work when no one seems to notice. What is your motivation? It is right and it is proper and it is biblical and it is faithful to say, I am doing it Because I believe that God will reward me. And that just kind of rubs against the grain in the culture of prosperity gospel that that reward means a a Cadillac or a a big house and an easy life. We know that's not right. So we go, okay, well, what does it mean to do it for the reward? I thought that our mission statement or our values statement in Connection Group, we taught you that we are motivated by the glory of God. I thought we were motivated by the glory of God, and now you're telling me we're motivated by the reward. Well, that's what I would tell you. The, one, the two are one and the same. We are motivated by the reward of the enjoyment of the glory of God. What I'm telling you is that you will enjoy God more and better forever the more that you give your life away on this earth. I don't don't think that way. Dan and I were talking this morning. I was like, do you think that way? I was like, I don't think that way. I don't think... She said, well, when we serve others, we, we, we do find joy in it. I was like, yeah, but what about those things that they're not fun? There's no joy in it. I'm just pouring my life out and I don't like it. And there's no reward here for it. The scripture says, but there will be great reward forever and ever. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said to about the kingdom blessed. This is Luke 6, 20 through 23. Blessed are you who are poor now for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall, future, be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh in the future. Blessed are you when men hate you now, when they ostracize you now, and insult you now, and scorn your name now, for the sake of Jesus, the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, why? Because your reward is great in heaven. Why suffer now for Jesus? Because it's worth it. Why drive to Florida? Because it's worth it when you get there. Why pay the price now? Because it's worth it. 
Sounds a little weird in my mind. Jesus said in Luke, uh, in Matthew 6, 4, Why give your money in secret? Why not blow trumpets whenever you put money in the offering plate? He says, give your money so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's nothing wrong with when you're writing your check. Remember me, oh God. <laughs> it just doesn't feel right, does it? Remember me, oh God, for this money that I am putting towards you instead of on vacation. That's what Nehemiah's doing. He's like, remember me, oh God, because I, 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 I want to live for your glory, but I need to know it's going to be worth it because it ain't worth it right now. And he's saying, do it for the future reward. Paul says in Colossians 3, 23 through 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for the man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So when you're doing your job and you're being faithful and you're being honest and you're not getting rewarded for it at work, just know this, you will be rewarded because you're serving Christ. And he says, do it. For the reward, I'm going to make it worth it to you. So, the writer of Hebrews holds up Moses. Remember, we studied Hebrews, and he was talking about the heroes of faith. He's saying, here, these guys got it right. Follow them. Follow their example. What did he say about Moses? He said, Moses chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, how could he choose that? He chose to leave the, the palace of Pharaoh where he could have enjoyed all the pleasures of sin, but instead he left it and endured ill treatment. How could he do that? Because by faith he was looking to the reward. He counted the cost. He thought about it. This is a good life. Selfishness is good. It feels good. It's fun. I like it. And he counted the cost and he says, but it's better. It's better to serve the Lord. He will reward me, Moses said. The scriptures, I just, it didn't take any work at all to find these verses. The scriptures is filled with lay your treasures up in heaven. Intentionally build you a treasure trove of reward in heaven, not on earth where it, where it rusts and moths destroy. So the glory of God is our reward. So what it means is that in this life, the more you lay your life down, the more you serve, the more you sacrifice, the more you discipline yourself to choose the Lord's path, the more you are blessed with Christ and the presence of Christ and the enjoyment of Christ now, but so much more forever and ever. Now, we have to say, okay, so if you enjoy Christ more than me forever, ain't that going to be kind of like, that ain't fair. Aren't going to be kind of like be jealous in, in eternity? 
The best explanation I've ever read, and I've shared it before, but it's worth repeating, is that if you and I, let's say three of us, go to, let's just say, an orchestra or a symphony, and I go and I listen, I'm like, man, that's, that's beautiful. And I enjoyed it. It was, it was a blessing to hear the beauty of, of the performance. But let's say you've spent a lifetime of blood, sweat, and tears disciplining yourself to play an instrument. And you could play an instrument. And you went with me to that, to that symphony. And you heard it. Oh, it was, you were so much more blessed. You enjoyed it to a different level than I did because of all that you put into knowing instruments. You just were like, wow. And you're talking to me about parts. And I'm going, I don't know what you're talking about, but that was awesome. And then what if, what if there was the, the conductor who, who not only played instruments, but, but understands the theory of music and how it all fits together and has worked all these days to get everyone together to play at their best and to play together and it's just a to him there is an enjoyment that surpasses way surpasses anything that i would enjoy but i don't know that his is better i'm not sitting here jealous i i enjoyed it i i think that's a great illustration of of what it's going to be like with the lord forever the bible clearly holds out it's worth it and if you don't, to the extent that you are selfish and you don't give your life away, you're losing reward. It's just that black and white. You are forfeiting a reward. And to the extent you are laying yourself down and you are sacrificing in this life, you should be motivated by, man, it's going to be worth it. More so than if I didn't do this. That's a new way of thinking, or that's, a, that's something I don't think of often. I hope that encourages you, but ultimately, the gospel is clear in all of this. That ultimately, if you see in this your own sinfulness, know that turn to Christ, He never gives up on you. He will be your source of righteousness. Put your faith and hope in Christ. And I promise you, the reward is worth it. Anything that you're counting the cost of walking away from to follow Christ, he is worth it. I hope that our study in Nehemiah has been a blessing. We're going to spend the next two weeks. Jared Clary is going to bring us two messages. And then we're going to start the book of Romans. And uh, I pray that it will be a great study for us. But in the meantime, I pray that God uses this study to make us a people who are serious about bringing gospel restoration to the city of Shreveport, to your neighbors, to your family, to your friends, and it's going to be hard work. It's just no doubt about it. We're going to need each other, and that's the blessing of a church covenant where you have brothers and sisters locking arms with you saying, we got this together, we're going to do this together, we're going to pray for each other. But ultimately, I want you to hear today, it's worth it. It's the best path that you and I can choose for our life. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, 
please visit us online at norseverychurch.org.